Today we'll be jumping into an interview with a very special guest. Dr. Tony Coral Evans wrote a doctoral thesis on ethnographic and theatrical concepts featuring Renaissance festivals. Today we'll be talking with her about her published book, her experiences at the Maryland Renaissance Festival, as well as her performances across the nation. My name is Victoria Van Arnhem, and I am joined today on Ren Talks by our co-hosts Nicole Skelly and Olivia Harding. Hello, ladies! Hello, hello! hello. So we just learned that you are not Ms. Coral Evans, but you are Dr. Coral Evans, and I think that's amazing. But for our viewers slash listeners, what is your PhD? I have an interdisciplinary PhD in theater and drama from Northwestern University. Awesome. So yeah, they were kind enough to let me uh, do my PhD on Renaissance festivals, uh, as opposed to the University of Maryland, which didn't think Renaissance festivals were worthy enough of study. So I got my master's degree there in theater history lit crit by writing my thesis on the National Hockey League. Oh my gosh. Right, right. So, so, yes. So University of Maryland didn't think that Renaissance festivals were worthy of study, but they thought that uh, the Hockey League was for a theater degree. But Northwestern was perfectly fine with me doing it on the Renaissance Festival. Yeah. So I need to say first off, because a couple episodes ago, we learned that I am a total teacher's pet, a total Ravenclaw. And I feel like this is one of my greatest fears because I haven't done the homework because my copy of this book is still in the mail. But you have written your, your is it your thesis, Renaissance Festivals? This was my uh, dissertation uh, at Northwestern, at least part of it. And then I got a contract to turn it into a book. And I, it, was, it was expanded then. The um, second chapter and the sixth chapter were greatly expanded. Amazing. And so it's called Renaissance Festivals Marrying the Past and Present. Love a good pun. Um, I just bought the uh, third to last new copy on Amazon, but there's lots of used copies available on Amazon. But I'm j can I read the, the description that they have on Amazon? Because it makes, like, it makes me tingle. It makes me really excited. The ethnographic study of contemporary American Renaissance fairs focuses on the Maryland Renaissance Festival in which participants recreate 16th century England through performances of theater, combat at arms, processions, street hawking, and meticulous, meticulously faithful historical reconstructions. It is also partly an autobiographical account of interactive improvisation, subcultures within the festival framework, the delineation between living history and historical elaboration, and a new understanding of performers and patrons. That pretty much sums it up. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing how my four years of my life can just be summed up like in a paragraph, but that really, that really oh. did do a good job of it. No, it's summed up in like 183 pages. <laughs> yeah. And there was like so much that was cut out. <laughs> wow. Really? So what we're saying is what, what I'm hearing is that you need to do a, a second version, revised and expanded second edition. What's interesting is that, you know, this book was written, the original book was written, the dissertation was written between 2004 and 2006. And then the book was written between 2007 and 2008 and published. 
2009. And so 11 years, a lot has changed. And there's, you know, there's just, and a lot of, um, there's just been a lot of different things that have happened on the circuit in the last 11 years. I think that really kind of play into some of the things I was talking about. There are some things that I felt like needed greater exploration that I didn't get a chance to go more in depth. Like you could do an entire book on patron and performer interaction. Like I felt like that's a, that's an area that just needed to be explored more. It's a chapter, but it could be a whole book on it. And so there's just a lot of different things. And there hasn't been a lot of scholarly work done on contemporary American Renaissance festivals. I am eternally grateful to Jen Gunnels, who um, kind of blazed the trail. She was one of the first people to get even a thesis published on it, a dissertation. She got her dissertation uh, on it, but was had to fight like all the way through for it to be considered worthy of study. And so she kind of paved the way. And then there's one other book that came after mine, uh, but it has a completely different focus and is not, um, was not appreciated by some people in the Renaissance Festival circuit because it seemed to uh, talk about people in the circuit in a somewhat derogatory way. And uh, I know, for example, I had a long conversation with Jewel Smith Sr. before he passed away, the owner of the Maryland Renaissance Festival. And um, he said, you know, he kept my book on his nightstand. Um, He used that book as kindling. And (laughs) that was my, (laughs) he was not real happy with the portrayal of of people at fair. It, it, It dug into a lot of the, kind of the the history that people talk about that's kind of the mythical type stuff that, you know, the stories grow as time goes on. And, uh, you know, so it's all the thing. And I still want to know where the orgies are because you know, <laughs> we've, we've, we've all heard about them. I live in the campground and yet the only thing I hear after 10 o'clock at night is snoring. So true. Like what, when would we get the energy to have orgies? Like right? we kill ourselves every day, like, 10 hours a day in the blazing heat. I don't, or, or the pouring rain or Or the the snow or the whatever. I mean, you know, and and sometimes all of those in one season, if you're in Maryland. Um, So yeah, I don't understand, first of all, where you get the energy to have an orgy at the end of the day. If you are, you're probably not doing your job there. And second of all, I don't know exactly where you're having it because I tend to walk the site at night. I love walking the site at night and quiet and I'll walk by and people will be maybe sitting at their booths and we'll chat and things. And you know, I have just never heard, and my, my husband says, he's like, you know, I, I think this was false pretenses because he goes, I have never found an orgy, you know, so, um, you know, and, and I mean, I, you know, there's, there's always, you know, grains of truth, and there are things that happen in certain places, and we all get that, but what we are and who we are and what we do now and what we've been doing for a significant amount of time, especially people who do this full-time and are on the road, like you said, who has the energy? It's like hard enough just to have a relationship. Yeah. <laughs> Olivia's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, what was the last thing that we had where we talked about single wenches, where you never see a single wench perform on stage? And I said, well, I'm a single wench. And they were like, no, we're talking about washing well wenches who perform alone. I was like, oh, okay, okay, got it. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Specify. 
specificity <laughs> is important. Yes. Um, all the single wenches, all the single, single wenches. wenches. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but we've had the discussion. Oh, parody coming on. Oh, yeah. Your parody time. We've had the discussion on this channel before about how often within the theater community as a whole, um, the Renaissance Festival is considered bottom of the totem pole. And we've discussed why we as we don't think that's true, but you as a person who's had to sort of fight in the academic realm to talk about the Renaissance Festival, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I always think that it's funny how people will, you know, say maybe say things like that. And I'm like, really? How much did you make at your last gig? Oh, oh wait a minute. <laughs> you had to pay to perform in that show? What? You, did, did you get a check? Because I will tell you something. Um, I work at the Maryland Renaissance Festival. Long before I went on the road, I was working at Maryland. That was my home fair, and that's where I started. Uh, so I started there in 1998. Uh, the check always clears, <laughs> and uh, it's significant. Um, and uh, in my book, actually, Bob Garman has a great uh, quote where he says something to the effect of... Um, People tend to do theater on streets more known for uh, legitimate prostitution than for theater, and then come and make fun of the fact that we're doing theater for 20,000 people a day when they're getting seven people in their audience. So I kind of think that sometimes people think that if you're not doing theater for theater's sake, and you're not doing this and you're not doing that, that you know, and you know, if you're not doing mammoth on the weekends, you're not, you know, doing theater. And that just irritates me to no end because we do quality performances and we do a wide range of performances. And I know people at festival who are just, I think they're some of the most versatile performers because I know musicians who are performing in bands, but I'll run into them on the street and I'll just start to say hi and they'll engage me in a bit. And we'll start going on improv and it's like, I had no idea you improv, you know, you're a musician. I mean, that's not necessarily your thing. And all of a sudden they're like, Oh no, I started out at fair doing improv, you know, we'll find you talk to each other later on, or I'll be working with an actor. And all of a sudden I find out that they play like three instruments and I'm like, you know, or, you know, they juggle and they do this and they do that. So there's just a lot of versatility among Renaissance festival performers. And I think to, to put them at the, the bottom of the barrel or the bottom of the rung. And I, and I think part of that is that you get, um, I know that, uh, some of the that equity was originally like you can't perform at renaissance festivals if you're equity and then they came back and went oh yeah you can because they're not really theater i'm like really because i'd like to challenge you to put and i you know i would just say for example our our uh, julius caesar that we did last year our all-female julius caesar i put up against any Shakespeare that went on in the Washington Baltimore metropolitan area last year. And also, I mean, it's funny because it is a good thing that the, that equity allows equity actors to perform at Renaissance festivals. Don't get me wrong. But when you were talking about 20,000 people, also because of the amount of space that Renaissance festivals take up, Renaissance festivals are usually in like rural suburbs. They are sort of in deep, country areas a lot of the time. Not always, like you have like, I think it's the Las Vegas festival that happens in the streets. But that means that you're reaching people who don't, often don't see the Broadway tours that go on. They don't see any other theater. And so you're able to touch people with live performance who never see live performance otherwise, which I think a lot of people forget. 
Yeah, and I think that's, you know, one of the things, like Maryland, we're in a major metropolitan area. I mean, we're not far from Baltimore or D.C., and we're, you know, five minutes from Annapolis. But we started doing street sphere five years ago, where we started doing bits and pieces of Shakespeare out in the street, because there's a certain group of people that will come to the Globe Theater at Maryland to watch a Shakespeare play. Street Spear is not just for those people. Street Spear is for anybody. It's done in the street. It's a guerrilla theater. It just pops up out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, it's just random acts of Shakespeare and his contemporaries. And it has become one of the most wildly popular programs that we have ever done at Maryland to the point where after the first year, I was talking with our artistic director, Carolyn Spedden. We were talking about, you know, it's like people are collecting Street Spears. And so the next year, we had a bingo card. And you go and you get your card stamped at all the different street spheres and you turn it in and then there's a drawing at the end of the year for a fabulous prize, um, which I think is like tickets to the next year's fair or something like that, you know, and, and we get people who they compete with their friends to see how many cards they fill out. We have people who filled out two and three cards, which means they're seeing 18 or 20. One year we did 35. We did the entire canon. Um, our artistic director does not consider two noble kinsmen to be canon. So we did the entire canon <laughs> um, and we were doing as you like it. So that was the center space and it was, you know, free because we did it at opening gate. And then, you know, uh, the, some of the life of man, uh, Stephen Kirkpatrick did the, the Jacques, the speech was just oh, awesome because he's such an amazing performer. And I mean, and here, oh, here you're talking about somebody like Stephen who uh, he and his husband, Charles, have been performing in professional theater for over 25 years. I mean, they were at um, Memphis Playhouse for years and before they moved to the DC area. And are, you know, they're, you know, both professional actors and both, I mean, Stephen is just one of the most amazing Shakespeare actors. And so, you know, you have this opportunity, though, to bring Shakespeare out into the street and also to bring some of the contemporaries that people would never, ever see. Um, as some, you know, really interesting medieval, late medieval and early modern pieces. And it's just been such a popular program. And then people get little pins and it's just, it's really cool. I mean, it's just a really amazing thing to see. So when people start denigrating what we do, and I look at like our stage acts and our musicians that we have and that I've seen across the country, and how hard they work and how entertaining they are and see, you know, as I'm walking through the village, packed stage after packed stage after packed stage, and you have so many choices. And yet I'll walk past, I've seen Nicole, uh, Lyric Stage, Gwendol doing the Gwendolyn show and packed. I walk past and I see Topsy Turvy over on Fortune, packed. You walk past the Whiteheart, you can't get a seat because the musicians are just packing people in there in the worst head. You know, but yet I've gone out and, and, you know, I perform locally. I perform in local venues and we're lucky if we get 50% capacity, right? If I'm doing a local show, you know, if you get 50% butts in the seat, you're happy. And I'm like, we have standing room only at a lot of shows in a venue that has eight stages. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're all like that. That's true. So, you know, so I, I don't, you know, I don't buy into it. And I remember having a discussion with my dissertation advisor where she was like, what makes yours, what makes this professional theater? And, you know, and so after talking and explaining a lot of these things, 
she was like, you know, I get it now. I really get it now. And she was like, I didn't understand before because I'd never been to a fair. She didn't, you know, she did, she'd only heard about them. She'd never seen one. She'd never been to one. And only after I sat there and, you know, really explained it, she's like, okay, I get it. I understand why you say this, this, and this about it. Sometimes I think it just, people just look down on it simply because it's outside of the elements. Like I had an experience in, in one of the fairs where a friend of mine who was a performer there, like a local performer, introduced me to someone that either she had gone to college with or taken classes in college with or something. And he used to do the festival, but now he does more like theater theater. And he's like, yeah, I moved up, you know, and he wasn't trying to be a jerk about it, but I thought about it. And I was like, I wrote and I write and direct my own shows and I have big audiences some places you moved up to indoors like that's the only thing I could think of is that he was like now I'm indoors I don't have to be in the sun yeah but yet people revere things like Shakespeare in the park or right. you know Oregon Shakespeare Festival or things like that and you just look at it and you go why are you making this designation and I do think that part of it does have to do with the history of fairs and it has to do with the fact of where fairs came from and some of those stories that, you know, come are part of the history of fairs that, you know, it came out, fair festivals sprang out of a time of upheaval. And most new forms of theater do. Most new forms of theater, if you look and you look at all of the theatrical movements and you can go through all of expressionism and surrealism and all these things and in and Brechtian theater, they all come out of times of upheaval. And Renaissance festivals were no different. First Renaissance festivals in 1963. You are coming out of, you know, you're in the middle of the civil rights movement. You have the death of a beloved president. You see the explosion of this as we are seeing, you know, things like the Summer of Love and Haight-Ashbury. You're seeing the Vietnam War. You're seeing this huge amount of upheaval. And theater is always a reflection, certainly, of what is going on in the world. And in a way, Renaissance festivals, by telling history, is kind of a cautionary tale of if you forget history, it's doomed to repeat itself. And it's also the place where it's, it's kind of, there's the carnival. It's a place where you can go and you can, you know, I say we have in at Maryland, for example, because we're right outside of Washington, DC, there are a lot of people who come there who work for agencies that have a lot of letters in their name. <laughs> and you would never know that by the way they act on the weekends and the personas that they play as patrons or sometimes as performers <laughs> because we have people who work there who work for places like NSA <laughs> or worked for CIA. Um, and, you know, we have people from Secret Service who hang out at the White Hart Tavern. Um, and so you get all of these people who come who normally during the week are doctors and lawyers and all of those things. And on the weekend, they're like, I don't want to have responsibility. I want to come and experience Carnival. I want to come and experience this world turned upside down. Everything's different. And even the bodiness that people look to at the festival, it's really funny because it's very historical. And so I always laugh because People are like, oh, you know, well, it's all the boobs are showing. The boobs are showing. And I'm like, yes, but you know what's not showing? Our shoulders or our ankles. Do you know why? Shoulders and ankles have no purpose. Shoulders and ankles have no purpose mm -hmm. in the Renaissance. That's why they didn't 
show them, you covered them. Boobs were shown because they had a purpose. They gave life. That's why they were up there. They were up there and they were out there because sometimes you had to pop one out. <laughs> and feed somebody. I was actually looking at that recently, that it's not just Renaissance, that it's up until late 1800s that it was completely accept acceptable to pop one out because they have a purpose. They have a purpose. Yeah. But ankles, God forbid you showed your ankles. Women were fined. One of the reasons why women, uh, they, they invented side saddle later on towards Elizabeth's reign is when side saddle riding is that it was very hard for a woman to ride a stride a horse and keep her ankles covered because you have to have a very long skirt to do that. Yep. It's very hard to do that. So side saddle, though, it's much easier because your ankles have no purpose. Your shoulders have no purpose. In Elizabethan side saddle, it wasn't, it didn't start out with one leg hooked over the thing. It started out with them actually sitting to the, like facing on the side with like a board that they rested their yep, feet on. With both of the feet on. Yeah. And that's, that was coming because Riding a stride, it was the, the thing about riding a stride was, oh my goodness, your ankles are showing. And I actually did a show back in 1999 where um, at Maryland, where I was learning how to ride because it was going to be my character's job to ride for the midwife when the head of the household who was pregnant was ready to give birth. And we had a woman who was really very pregnant at the time. And, and so we were playing into the storyline. And Lady Briaville, who was one of our horsewomen, and Sir Barkhan, who was one of the jousters, had a show that they would do. And they had this little, they had a show they did night school, and they had a little area with that horse. And so they were teaching me how to ride. And the man playing my husband, who was about 30 years my senior, would come up and just, man, you're showing your ankles, what's the matter with you? You know, and it was just this thing, and it was a very historical moment. And then we would, he, he would berate me, I would get down, we would have this huge argument, and then we would explain to everybody why this was just such a thing. And it, it seems so funny to us and our sensibilities as we walk around in shorts and stuff. But I have found that, you know, when people will say stuff to me at fair about, you know, the girls being up there or, or something like that, I'll be like, yes, but at least I'm not showing my ankles. And all of a sudden they're like, what? <laughs> and then it's a great teaching moment. Or, or well, <laughs> but I can see your shoulders, you know, because everybody's in tank tops, right? Because I'll tell you what, if I'm going to fair for fun to watch fair, in 80, 90 degree weather, I'm wearing shorts and a tank top. I'm not going there. Oh, yeah. You know, if, you're not, if there isn't a paycheck coming, if somebody ain't making it rain, I ain't wearing a costume. <laughs> I feel you on that for sure. I say that if you want me, so I wear a lot of makeup at fair, and it's like, if you want me to put on my fake eyelashes, you, there better be a check involved in the process. Yeah. Money is, money is a requirement. I will dress up anytime. <laughs> I won't dress up, but I will say that I used to have the dream of being nobility. Like I mentioned in a past episode that my dream was to become Queen Elizabeth because obviously she's wonderful. And then at a certain point working at festivals, I went, no, I will never be noble in a million years because then I have to pretend that I care what I look like. <laughs> I have literally played everything from down in the dirt like when we did the lineup of the cast, I looked to my right and there was one person who was lower, two people that were lower status than I was. And that's only because I was married and they weren't. And everybody else was up here. I have played Down in the Dirt Peasant. Um, I've played the village gambler, games mistress, who's really down in the dirt. Um, I've played pirates. 
low and I've played the reigning monarch at a fair. So I've played and I've played middling class. I've played Queens ladies. I've played everything in between and they all have their advantages and their disadvantages. Um, they're very different. It is very different to play a peasant, um, to play a middle class, to play uh, somebody with a really strong profession. Um, I, I play a cook right now, which is the easiest thing on earth because it's a strong profession to play mm -hmm. uh, than it is to, to, you know, and then court has its own thing. It's easier for people to approach you in your court because you're wearing the pretty gown and it's easy just, you're, you know, for people to come up and talk to you because they want a picture. Uh, but there are things as court ladies that you can't do, or if you do, you tend to get in trouble for. Not that I would know anything about that. <laughs> and to, for, oh, sorry, for anyone that doesn't know um, what Tony was just talking about, looking to the left or looking to the right, there's an exercise that you can do um, at, with casts where you line up all of the cast members who are in, in their character with um, one end being the very lowest status the uh, lowest station character, so like a mud beggar way down at the bottom and the other end being the reigning monarch. And you look to one side to everyone who's lower than you and those are all the people that sh should kind of show you deference and everything that puts you in the lineup, bow to you. And you look to the other side towards the monarch and those are all the people that you have to show deference to. Just to get your idea of, a, of where your place in the village hierarchy are because Elizabethans were very, like they knew that stuff. Like they were very on that stuff. There's yeah. no such thing as equals in Tudor society. Even if you were both dukes, one had precedence over the other by who was made duke first. It could be by five minutes, but that was a lifetime that you were, it had precedence, so. And going back to where Renaissance fairs sit in like theater society, this is something that almost every theater class I've ever been in starts with an exercise on status that status defines how you perform on a stage or in life. Like I remember someone once told me, and it really was eye-opening, that the reason why elevators feel so weird is it's because everyone in an elevator is trying to pretend not to have status and it's impossible. So your voice, like your pitch of your voice changes depending on what status you're trying to have. Your, the way you walk changes, the way you stand changes depending on the status you're trying to have both in life and on stage. And so the Renaissance Fair, because the Renaissance dealt with status in every aspect of every part of life in such an obvious way, is such a great place to start out thinking about status. And that's why, and I was gonna talk about this when we were talking about like where theater, um, Renaissance Fair sits in the theater ladder. I think that a lot of people look down on Renaissance Fairs because they are a uh, educating working environment. And a lot of people, a performance cast can have anyone from like a low, like a actual Broadway theater, like for example, New York Renaissance Festival. There are people who go on to do Broadway productions in the performance cast. And then you have someone who's never acted before in their life and might never act again. And that's what's beautiful about it. And that might be a reason why people look down on it because you will have all ranges of experience and talent. But I think that's one of the most beautiful things about the Renaissance Festival is that it's if you have the passion, if you have the the willingness to work, you will be accepted. Yeah, and I think people do different things at fair. And I think sometimes part of it is that being on cast is not 
the only way to be a part of FAIR. Obviously, you all are uh, perform with a musical group, a solo. Uh, you do you write and do your own show. Uh, I do both. I've done, but I've also been a vendor. So I've been a merchant. Uh, I, told, I was telling you earlier that I worked for a cigar booth. And so for a year, I was the village cigar girl. And uh, Ferris found out that this was just like a huge bonus to them because they were getting a village character they weren't having to pay for. Because while I was out selling cigars, I was telling stories because that's how you sold cigars. Um, so I had stories about, you know, just everything that had to do with tobacco, cigars, the Pope. Um, oh yeah, this was at Florida. <laughs> <laughs> it was Pope tested, Pope approved. Wait <laughs> to smoke coming out of the chapel when they elected a new Pope, a CAO Italia. You didn't know? I know, it's good cigar. <laughs> so, you know, I've done that. I ran a bar at uh, Bristol Renaissance Festival called The Leather Bottle. So I've run a pub at a fair. I've been a merchant at a fair. I've been on cast at a fair. Um, my husband and my son and I have an acting troupe where we've gone out and been hired to go to fairs and do with our troupe as a class act, Rubs to Royals. So basically we're plug and play. What do you need? Like, where are you deficient? That's where you put us. So we literally had one fair where they had hired a court for one day they hired a court for Saturday, but not for Sunday or Monday of Memorial Day weekend. And so Saturday we played our pirates, and Sunday and Monday the three of us were the court. Oh my god! We gosh. did the knighting ceremony. We did, yeah. So literally, it was a small fair in the Midwest on the Midwest Circuit in a man of colonies. Um, you know, it's like I said, tiny little fair, but the check cleared. <laughs> and we got a lovely 100-year-old Scottish bocce set that we use still to this day. Yes, you have to come do bocce with us. We got, we got a 100-year-old Scottish lawn bowling set that we use um, to do lawn bowling at fair. Um, but we did that fair. We did Nebraska, which is also a small fair, which was a plug-and-play, where they were just like, okay, we need additional courtiers come on in and do courtiers. So we came in and met with the queen. I had like, we had like a half hour meeting before the first cannon and boom, we were there. So we've done that. And now we have the show that my husband and I do. When we go on the road at Maryland, I do the show right now with Charles Boynton. Uh, but on the road, my husband and I do it and that's Cakes and Ale. And our new show, Casks and Flasks, which was going to debut at Maryland this year. But as so many other sentences this year have ended, because... <laughs> so um, we'll debut next year, hopefully, at Maryland or somewhere else. But you have been producing this uh, Cakes and Ale on, your, on the internet, is that correct? Yeah, we're doing Cakes and Ale online. Um, okay. I pretty much, we were booked to do Da Vinci Con, a first year fair in Virginia. Um, and we had been booked to do that. And when that fair canceled... By about the second week of April, first week of April, I had already figured out we weren't going to have Maryland. Um, I think the Smiths did everything they could to try to hold that fair. But I also think that they realized when they couldn't and they wanted to give everybody enough notice. And I am 
thankful beyond belief to them for making the decision they made because with the way the numbers are spiking, I don't think we're opening. And so I said, we have to find a way to replace that income. And this is the part that like people really don't understand is that it's income. And even though my husband and I have day jobs and we are thankful because unlike so many of you who are doing this full time, there's so many people out there that this is their only livelihood. Um, we have day jobs, but we still were losing an eighth of our net income, a 12th of our gross income and an eighth of our net income comes from the Maryland Renaissance Festival or other performances. And that's a chunk of change. Um, so we decided to start doing Cakes Now online and we did a Patreon and we also, we donate 20% of everything that we make, 10% to Rescue and 10% to RCF because we know that everybody right now is like, again, we have day jobs. We are fortunate and we both have jobs where we're teleworking. So our jobs have been incredibly supportive um, and we're very fortunate. So we want to give back to the community as much as we can. Uh, but Cakes Now Online has kind of taken on a life of its own. It's morphed as we've seen what people wanted and what people asked for. And one of the things is when things started getting better, we started going out and doing reviews of uh, places that had opened back up, uh, wineries, distilleries, breweries, cideries, meaderies, places that were outside where you could have social distancing, where they were doing proper sanitation. And I will tell you, there are some places we went where we didn't get out of the car. Like we drove up and went, oh, that's a no. <laughs> we're not, we're not, no. Um, and we did reviews of places as things were opening up and said, listen, this is, this is what they're offering. This is what their safety measures are. This is what they serve. And I mean, taking one for the team, because we're givers. We tasted a lot of beer and a lot of booze. That must have been really hard for you guys. I'm so sorry. Oh, we're, I appreciate your effort. And your and sacrifice. We're, we, you know, we do it for you. We do it for the people. Thank it's, you. you know, it's, it's something. It's, yeah, it's hard. It's hard, <laughs> but, but we got to do it. Yeah. Um, is that in the, is that in the, the Maryland area-ish? Um, forgive my ignorance We literally have done Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and, oh, wait, we're currently in Missouri. Oh my gosh. So we will be bringing you some reviews from the heartland in the next couple of weeks because that's where we are. Where on where online? I'm assuming Facebook. Can people find your cakes and ale program? Yeah, Facebook.com cakes you know slash cakes and ales. Thank you. And we do Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central, 4 p.m. Pacific. Sorry, Pacific people. Trying to. <laughs> Trying to get the East Coast people to be like, eight o'clock will be fine. So they're all on the Facebook page. And then um, we do, so the first week we do casks and flasks, which is kind of right now our review of distilleries, wineries, meaderies, cideries, basically anything that involves alcohol. Um, yeah. And then, because we're givers. And then week two is um, conversations with Cecily and Arnold. So it's talking about all things fair, um, Maryland specific, or questions about the road, questions about fair history, questions about Tudor history. Week three, we've been doing Renaissance recipe research in one week. So I get a recipe because I play the village cook at Maryland. I get a recipe uh, Wednesday night after week two is over. I have one week to research the recipe, uh, figure out what all the words are, <laughs> what all the ingredients are find them and then cook it and see if it turns out. 
How many of them turn out? So far, I've been pretty lucky. Um, learned a couple of things. Made a lamb pie. Uh, it was way too sweet the first time we made it. So we had a bunch of the meat left over. So we cut it half and half with beef for the second pie that we made. And we found that that was a lot better. So then I adjusted the recipe. Because when I do my cooking, a lot of times when I redact recipes, it will take one or more than one time, two or three times to kind of figure out like what's the right mixture of things. And now I only really have one shot at it. So I'm having to make the changes after the fact. We're like, okay, we tried this. This was too sweet. This was too, um, but I recently did the one last one I did, which we haven't even gotten to do the show yet uh, was uh, like a cherry dessert that turned out really well. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. It would be a great thing to pour over the top of ice cream, I think. Ooh, I do like a good a la mode. Yeah, it was really good. And it's made with wine, so, because I cook with wine. And sometimes it goes in the food. <laughs> I have some questions. So, so the name of your book is uh, Renaissance Festivals, Marrying Past and Present. Um, there is a word in here that you speak about quite a bit, and I am hesitant to try and pronounce it. Interestus. Thank you. There are there are states of of intrasticity and um, intrasticical, intrasticitive, and intrasticious. Intrasticious, yes. So I look at the so the intrastice to me is the overlap of sixteenth century England and twenty first century America. And I originally started out with uh, a theory that was from Victor Turner, who wrote from Ritual to Theater. And he had something called liminality, which was a state that was neither here nor there, neither then nor now. And I originally started out with that. And I presented a paper, and this wonderful woman from Australia said, you know, oh, but you know, oh, yours, yours is very filled space. His is an empty space. And she said, it's not a liminal space. Your space isn't empty. It's not neither here nor there, neither then nor now. It's both here and there, both then and now. And I'm like, yeah, it is. So I went back to my dissertation advisor after going to this, you know, very fancy International Federation of Theater Researchers Conference. And I'm like, um, I want to rewrite Victor Turner, who is like a sacred cow, right? And you know what they say about sacred cows, they make great burgers. And, but I'm like terrified because I'm literally going to my dissertation advisor and saying, I want to write, rewrite like one of the greatest minds of theater history theory, right? And she's like, he wrote that like 25 years ago. It's time for him to be rewritten. And I was like, <laughs> and my dissertation advisor was like amazing. Okay. So she was like 46 years old when she won like the American Society for Theater Research um, Lifetime Achievement Award at 45. <laughs> I'm like, she has like seven books, 13 chapters and books. 42 articles in journals. I mean, she's just amazing, Tracy, Dr. Tracy Davis. And so I'm like, I was terrified. And she was like, no, I think that you have to do that. So we talked about it and intrastice is within as opposed to interstice. So interstate is going out of state, intra, intrastate is within. So I came up with the interstice, um, which is that space where it's overlapping. And because you're experiencing both things at the same time. And how deep you go, it's kind of a, 
like a V, a funnel. The first level is the level that a lot of people engage in theater at. We talk about the willing suspension of disbelief, right? So yes, there's my funnel. What page is that on? Awesome. So will this will be uh, will include this in the uh, visual uh, podcast, which will be on YouTube and Facebook. This is on page nine. Page nine. It includes the funnel. So when you talk oh. about that first level, it's just it's that normal level of theater going. I'm willing suspension of disbelief. I'm willing. So I use Peter Pan as an example. So you're going to see Peter Pan. Willing suspension of disbelief. We're going to pretend people are flying. Whatever. Right. So then the next level down where you start to get into it is where you're playing at belief, right? So let's say you go to Peter Pan, but you go with your four-year-old niece. And so it cuts to the point where they say, clap for Tinkerbell to save Tinkerbell's life. So you're like, I'm going to clap for Tinkerbell, honey. Are you going to clap for Tinkerbell? So you're playing at believing, like you're actually doing something to play at believing. Your niece is at that deepest level of the interestess. She really believes that clapping for Tinkerbell is going to save her life, right? That's where, because children play. And as adults, we lose that sense of play and that sense of belief and that sense of, and what festival does, and those of us who do festivals, we don't really lose that. We really enjoy that, and we bring that out in other people. And so this is why you have the people who come to the festival, like the Maryland Renaissance Festival, who literally work for the CIA, and yet they come on the weekend, and they're the best miller in the village. Now, they don't work there. They're a patron, but they can tell you all about their grain and how it brews the best beer because they've created this character for themselves and their friends and their doing their thing. And that's when you get into that, that level. And so that, that depth of belief in the interest is, is where I see festival works at all three of those levels. And for a person who comes, it really just depends on where you want to go. I know people that don't even engage in the first level. They come to the festival because it's a performative shopping mall. And there's beer. And there's beer. Yeah. Um, Beer can lead to some really interesting participation in the interest test. <laughs> both yep. good and not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there are people who come who aren't really, they're not there to play. Not, and as, especially as a performer, that is something you have to suss out like that. Like you have to be able to suss that out in the streets really quickly where somebody is in that level. And I always say, this is why, you know, when they talk about, you know, how people who are in theater wait tables and 10 bars. And I say, you know, I have three degrees in theater. I have waited a lot of tables. I've tended a lot of bars. It makes me a great improv person because it's the same thing as when you're a server and you're going up to a table and you have to decide, does this table just want me to drop off their menu, drop off their drinks, drop off their food and have no other interaction? Do they want me to chit chat with them a little bit or do they want me to kneel down by their table while they tell me their life story? I am sure that hairdressers probably same thing. So bartenders, same thing, right? So there's certain professions that are like that. And as an improv performer, you have one shot to figure this out. And if you guess wrong, you better be able to pivot really quickly. Because if you think somebody really wants to play and they don't, you're going to get a cold shoulder. 
And if you just try to slightly engage somebody who really wants to play, they're going to want to drag you in and you need to be able to pivot and be like, okay, yeah, this person really does want to play. And sometimes it's so funny that you, the people that are there that are like, you, you would think that the more somebody's dressed up, the more they would want to play. And that's not necessarily the case. I have had the most fun with people who maybe have one tiny piece of accoutrement. Maybe they thought I hat that day or they have a pouch or they're carrying a new mug and they're just starting on this adventure and those are the people that I just love to just have at with and talk about you know ask them where they got what they got talk about it what are they enjoying about the day you know they'll answer questions that they have and that you find that's where you start going down into those different levels and digging down into it and you know, you'll see people who get really, really invested. Um, I've done two different death marches at the Maryland Renaissance Festival. Um, I was there the year that we marched Anne Boleyn off uh, back in 2004, which is the year that's focused on in the book. And uh, yeah, there were a group of guys from the Boar's Head who decided that uh, Anne had gotten a raw deal. Uh, Henry was the worst in the world and they were going to save her. And they tried to kidnap the queen out of the we're marching her off to take her away to go to the tower moment. Um, and it really involved a lance connect with a Zweihander, and that did not stop them. However, the female lance connect follower who pulled the rondelle out from in between her boobs was what finally got them to believe she would actually beat them about the head if they tried to lay a hand on the queen. Um, <laughs> this is this happened. And then in 2014, I was the Duchess of Buckingham in the year that was literally labeled the death of Buckingham. <laughs> um, and so at the end of the day, my husband was marched from the Globe Theater, which is towards the back of the village, all the way to the front by the Maypole. And we followed behind and we had hundreds of people that would follow us. And then they go to take him off. And he gives this beautiful final speech. And then there was a thing that happened afterwards that was all completely improv. There was, we hadn't even talked about it. It just happened. And then once it happened, the first day it happened every day. But people were very much like the guy who was playing, um, uh, I think it was Bolin. And he was the one who got very snotty with me after they had taken my husband off and I made him bow to me. And when he went to scurry off, he was like, there were times he was a little bit in fear that people were going to stop him from leaving. They certainly weren't going to let him follow me. Um, it was, you know, it was, you know, we turned and kind of turned on our heels and went off stage. And, but he said there were times when people like blocked his way and were like really angry with him for being so rude. <laughs> it was like, mm. <laughs> what you were saying about like being able to sense the kind of audience member some person will be, it makes me think of, I've talked to other groups about inviting an audience member up, having an audience volunteer and the split second, just scan analysis you need to do of the, the audience and how it's not always just sort of enthusiasm and being into something and how either way I think about it is almost like a D and D alignment chart, but instead of good to evil, you have enthusiastic to un, uh, unenthusiastic to enthusiastic. And sometimes it's better to have a lawful, unenthusiastic person versus a chaotic, enthusiastic person up on the stage with you, because you never know what'll happen. 
when you've picked the wrong person and you know, like within the instant that you've picked the wrong person, like, like you do it and then you see the look on their face the minute you do it and you go, oh, this is going to go sideways really fast. And you're like, you're already plotting how you're going to get out of it. <laughs> you're laughing because you've had to do this. I once had to do it with a child. I had to, the, my worst audience experience ever, I think, was there was a child who we were asking for items. We were doing that classic improv game where we like present items and the person's arms is through another person's um, uh, armpits and they're doing the arm stuff for the other person. We needed props. So I'm going around asking for props. And this is a, a stage th show, like big proscenium theater. And this little girl, maybe four years old, is screaming that she wants to give us her teddy bear. Like, take my teddy bear, take it or else. And so I, I was like, oh, not thinking, scared of the little child. Okay, I'll take your teddy bear. Never, ever take a teddy bear away from a four-year-old, even if she's begging you to, because then we just had a screaming four-year-old for the rest of the scene. <laughs> and the second I was on the stage with a teddy bear, I knew I'd made a terrible mistake. <laughs> it's ever, I, when I was in the, when I had the sword fighting show, when I was in the Steel Sisters, it was, I, I picked the people out of the audience for the majority of the time. And I was like 98% of the time I was on it and it was great. And part of the reason for that was that like my show partner had a whole bunch of lines where I could just look at the audience and like that person, okay, that person, oh, that person. Like I, there were two specific jokes that I would check in on my people. And if they laughed at those jokes and were paying attention and not looking around or at their phone, I was like, okay, they're a candidate. And on, with the solo show, it's a little bit harder to do that because I have to be talking and be reacting to everything that's happening in the audience. So I can't use part of my brain to pick someone. But we were doing TRF and I picked someone. I was very excited and I brought him up and he did not speak English. And so oh. I gave my partner the option to give him back, to throw him back. And she was like, nope, we're going to do this. It, it, it worked out fine. I think we brought have his friend up to, to translate or something. But no, it, it wasn't it wasn't as bad as it could have been. But so sometimes, you know, you know, when you go pick them immediately, like this person's not going to be good. And then sometimes you don't know until you ask them to talk. Victoria. How how have you been with your child bringing like teaching them the dulcimer? Right. So I have a bit in my show where I I choose a child volunteer typically and the uh I bring them up and we we play the dulcimer together and it's kind of a foolproof bit. Like, you know, even if they mess up it's okay. If the bit just kind of like flatlines, it's not the end of the program. You know, it's not like a like a like major clincher for the show. But yeah, they they range in 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 capacity and i'm really because there's no way to tell honestly like sometimes like the seven-year-olds can follow along and get it just right and it's like bang that's fantastic and sometimes the you know the 18 year old just like face plants because they're too nervous and it's like all right either one but it's always such a treat when i get a kid that can uh, follow along like it's a follow the leader kind of thing they follow along they get it and then they look at you and they're like Ah, like I just did that like you know and then the crowd claps and everybody claps and then they go off to say you know and it's wonderful and everybody you know like they have they have thusly presented on stage you know and it's like that is that is so cool and that's what's great about I mean you know they say never work with dogs or children kids are terrifying <laughs> 
I, 10 out of 10 don't suggest, but <laughs> that's, that's my show. <laughs> I did a show once at Maryland where I was teaching people how to play the lap dulcimer, teaching kids. Oh. And so what I had is I had made sheets that went underneath. And so all they had to do was follow along. And then they got a copy of the sheet to to take home with them. It was, it was very sweet. And I mean, I had little kids up there who couldn't follow along because they were too small to, they could barely like, but it was, it was wonderful. You know, it was, it was one of those shows that was just done for the kids. That's what, that was the purpose of it. I cannot imagine doing a show for an entire audience on a, on a regular stage with no <laughs> although I do have, we we have a, a young man that did the for the last couple of years has been our mushroom boy during the cakes and ale show at maryland and uh he he would come and announce like what the dish of the day was or something like that or what country we were doing the food from but uh, i finally said okay you've been our mushroom boy for three years you're gonna we're gonna have to stay and he was a patron the patron, patron son and patron who had come since he was babe in arms. And I finally said, you know, but mushroom boys don't last that long. They either get promoted or, you know, demoted because they're the ones that have to taste the mushrooms. Demoted six feet. Six, six feet. feet. Down. <laughs> I want to, I've thought of a show, a take on one of the shows that I do now where I use adult audience volunteers. And one time I tried it because I, I had, it started out with three audience volunteers. So I used like two adults and a kid and that was, didn't quite play. So I changed it all up and now it's adults. Um, I want two adults. Um, but I want to do one with a kid, but I'm not like that. I feel like I will have to prep so much more because I can pick adults. I can pick adult volunteers to come and be part of my show. But kids, you like, you get like Victoria was saying, you get that age range, but you can't always tell by that age range. And to me, I can't tell age anyway. So anyone who is a kid is probably seven to nine years old. I have no idea if they're shorter or they're taller. There could be 14. They're seven to nine. I really don't know. So I'm like, unless I have very specific instructions and verbiage to say to them to get the exact result I want, because I can give an adult audience volunteer generalized instructions because I know that he could follow my exact instructions or he could just kind of take the, the basic idea and do something else and add something to the show, which I love. But with kids, like, I don't want to give them too much play because then it could just like snowball into a, tra a train wreck of a show. But I really want to bring a kid on stage with me, but I don't know why. You know who brings a lot of kids on stage? Uh, mm. Gypsy Jeff does a ton yes. of kid stuff and his kid stuff is brilliant. Like his is such a, exercise in like control of children like that it thing is. he does a bit with a puppet and he's like you know has them lay down on the ground and then he has them go lower and lower and lower and then like pop up and these kids are just like they're just freaking out but they're yeah. so into it and so attuned to what he's doing and it's impressive I don't know, but what is a mushroom boy? I am lost in the program here, folks. Y'all gotta, y'all gotta help a, help a, y'all gotta help a girl out. Mushroom boy was one of the jobs in a, in a grand household where it would be the, you know, probably the son of one of the other workers there. 
and that would be the person who would go out and help gather the mushrooms. Uh, mushrooms often grow in places that adults can't get into, like inside of logs and, you know, small cavernous little areas. Um, but you also have to, somebody has to taste the mushrooms because there's probably about a hundred different kinds of mushrooms in the tri-county areas, I say, around Oxfordshire, <laughs> and probably about 70% of them are poisonous. That doesn't mean they'll kill you, huh. but um, they might, you know, put you in the privy for a week. <laughs> or it might be, as my good friend Kiva McDonough said, it was like my last time I went to Portugal. It was a very good trip. <laughs> Those are the mushrooms from over there we refer to in the show. So, yeah, so that's, nice. uh, that's Mushroom Boy. So we told him we wanted to promote him to a spit boy. It's not what you think. It's the guy who turns the spit. Oh, uh, thanks. Um, and he's like, I don't want to stand in the hot kitchen. I'm like, you realize you're not actually doing this, right? <laughs> <laughs> but he's very he's very literal Aww. I know a lot about the the households and and things like that because I run the revelers bower at Maryland I manage that area and that's the living history area in addition to doing my show there um, and doing the improv and whatever else I might be doing during the day I kind of just manage that area with our people who do handcrafts and things like that and, um, I actually started out in the living history at Maryland and so got a really good background in that and so and I and I love history um I have I have a library that's just filled with books I was about to say I couldn't tell it's like no no I just I find it I find it a lot easier to riff on things when I actually know what I'm talking about (laughs) um at least somewhat at least I have enough to start with and then I just sound so confident about it that people are like oh yeah and it's like, I could be totally lying. Nobody would ever know. So I'm interested in the concept of like escapism at the fair, because, you know, you talked about, you know, people who work very strenuous jobs come out to fair to experience kind of carnival and things. Absolutely. And I think that the second chapter of the book, which is on the weekend following September 11th, 2001, yes. is a really great example of what escapism and what the festival offered. So normally the festival is the world turned upside down. It's a place where you go where you can be body and you can be anybody you want to be. And it's just this. When the world turns upside down, festival suddenly becomes the safe space, the norm. Part of the reason this year has been so hard for so many people is that the one thing they cling to, and I'm not talking about performers or vendors or people who work at fair, I'm talking about the patrons, the one thing they cling to as that safe space and that safe haven is fair. It's a place where everything turns out well in the end and it's this joyous place and it's full of mirth and merriment and it's a place where you go to forget everything outside of the gates. And in the midst of a horrible pandemic, in the midst of racial injustice and social upheaval and a contentious election, people had no, didn't have that to turn to. And so it really caused a lot of problems. And I can say this because having worked that weekend at Maryland following September 11th, 2001, it was one of the most touching, exhausting, unbelievable experiences of my life. 
Um, anybody who worked that weekend, we have a bond that will never be broken because we showed up not really knowing were we even going to open. Like we all just showed up because nobody had told us not to show up. Um, our ownership, again, I can't give enough of a huge shout out. Um, Jules Smith Jr. came out, spoke to us himself and said, we are opening. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if anybody's going to show up. Remember, baseball was closed. Football was closed. Theaters were still closed. Um, but people have been calling and asking, so we should have some people here. Um, we're going to donate a dollar of every ticket sold for the rest of the fair to the Pentagon Relief Fund. We thank you all for coming and showing up this morning. Uh, then he left, our entertainment director came on, and she told everybody, if you can't do the day, that's fine. You can leave. If you need to take extra breaks, that's fine. You can do that. Um, and by the way, if you are wearing red, white, and blue ribbons, yellow armbands, black armbands, ribbons, take them off. Because if people are coming here, they are coming here because they want to forget what they have seen on the news cycle for the last five days. And so people did. People had made them, and they, they took them off. And the whole goal of the day became, don't go backstage. Because <laughs> when you went backstage, <laughs> it was 2001. When I was on the street, it was 1529. <laughs> and that was a good time. <laughs> um, it, was, it was unbelievable. Uh, every show got a standing ovation. Every line that was supposed to get a laugh got laughs. Some that never had gotten laughs before got laughs. The ones that got laughs got tremendous laughs. People were hooting and hollering and, and just enjoying themselves to no end. People went out of their way to thank us without breaking character, without breaking us out of character. People would come up to me. I was playing the Duchess of Norfolk that year. It was the very first time I'd ever been in court. And people would come up to me and say, you know, I just want to say thank you for coming on your royal progress to Rebel Grove today. It was like how the, the way people went out of their way to, to thank us without breaking us out of the interstice was unbelievable. Like they just needed something. And we were doing a show that year called The Grand Event. It was uh, Maryland's 25th anniversary. And so uh, we were in the middle of the Anne Boleyn, King Henry, Catherine of Aragon storyline. We took a year off from it uh, because the, we wanted to do something, you know, 25th anniversary, happy, peppy, positive, right? And so we did this grand event where, you know, it was this great show. Everybody came and gave the king gifts and all of this stuff. And if you, um, if you turn to that chapter, and I, and I don't know exactly, what page it's on, but there's a quote that was in the show that Carolyn had written, who knows, May, June, maybe? And it's from Richard II, and it's John of Gaunt's uh, This Royal Throne of Kings speech. This set isle, this little pearl set in a shining sea against nature, uh, against infection in the hands of war. And at the end of this show, our king, who at that time was Bill Huddle, who was 6'7", 340 pounds, and looked like you would expect Henry to look. I mean, used to joke he was the only guy that ever got a musical theater degree from Catholic University on a football scholarship. <laughs> a true story. Uh, he would say, normally at the end of the show, he would say, God save Rebel Grove, and he would point up in the air, and everybody else would go, God save Rebel Grove, and then we would have theatrical pyrotechnics. 
That was when we could have theatrical pyrotechnics, Nicole. Yeah, it's way before my time. Uh, for those for those who don't know, uh, you can't use fire in Maryland at the Maryland Fair. There's no fire performance. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no fire. Um, I can do fire at the living history area if we have somebody tending it 24-7, which I don't have. So that's why we don't have a fire in our oven. Um, but other than that, Nick's on the fire. Um, so no theatrical pyrotechnics. Can't call them fireworks because we don't need theatrical pyrotechnics. And so he would go, God save Rebel Grove. We go and put his hand up like this and a finger up in the air. And we'd, God save Rebel Grove. And the theatrical pyrotechnics go off and that was the end of it. Well, he gives this speech, which is all about England being, you know, this. Uh... It's on uh, It's on page 61, Nicole, if you want to grab that here oh, real quick. It. Yeah, yeah. It. Do you want to? Yeah, Do you please. Want me to? The, yeah. And to this royal throne. Yeah. And to this royal throne of kings, this sceptered isle, this earth of majesty, this other Eden, this fortress built by nature for herself against infection in the hand of war, this happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in a shining sea that doth serve in its office as a wall against the envy of less happier lands, this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England. So... Imagine this is being said on September 15th, 2001. Oh. I literally have goosebumps just hearing Nicole read it. Followed by God Save Rebel Grove. And then Bill, unbeknownst to all of us, had arranged this with stage manager, and he just spreads his arms. And you have to understand, this guy just, when he spread his arms, it just felt like he was going to hug you. And he goes, and God bless us. And then the theatrical pyrotechnics go off. And the audience loses. I mean, they stand up. They are screaming. They are hollering. I am standing next to Diane Wilshire, who is playing the Marchioness of Exeter. And the only reason that neither one of us hit the ground is that we slumped into each other. So it was like the, the, the thing where you're holding each other up, just, to, to, you know, it's a principle of physics. And that is the only reason. If we had gone the other way, we're both down because we literally slumped into each other like this because it was just like all of the energy of the day and everything. And then we finally, we stand back up and we all file out and we get backstage and like, we're, we're bawling. Like we are, we have lost it at this point. And we took like 30 seconds and I walked back up front and I said, I am not going back stage again today. <laughs> you are, there is nothing that is getting me backstage again today. Uh, except for the one time I had to go back and like strip down. We were doing a show called Dress the Duchess. And I had to strip down to my civvies and then they redressed me. And I'm like, other than that, I did not leave the front of the site for the rest of the day. I'm like, there's just no way. I'm like, I just need to be in 1529 and just be happy and peppy and wonderful and not, I can't, I couldn't think about it. Um, but that was, when you want to talk about escape, that was the epitome of escape for people. People just came out. Um, and the, at that point, it was the highest selling beer weekend in the history of the fair. Oh, wow. I, I believe that record has been broken now. But at that point, I mean, you have to remember this is 19 years ago. At that point, it was the highest selling beer weekend in the fair, and there wasn't a single arrest. It was just, I mean, everybody was just... And we would do, at the end of the day, we would have like a, you know, we would stand outside and say goodbye to people. And people just, the effusiveness with which people were thanking us was just beyond anything. And the rest of that whole season was like that. But that very first Saturday and Sunday were 
crazy. And people just need, I mean, because it was, it was constant. It was, you couldn't, there wasn't a television station that it wasn't on. I mean, God, you turned on ESPN and they were covering it, right? Because there was no sports to cover, right? right? So they were covering why there was no sports. So it was just, it was that constant news cycle. And I think that that is really why this year, I think that there's a lot of people. Renaissance festivals, when I wrote my book, we're bringing in more than 10 million people a year through the gates. That's a good chunk of people. Um, Maryland itself brings through the gates nearly 300,000 people a year in 19 days. By comparison, Colonial Williamsburg, which is open 365 days a year, only brings in a million people. Wow. Wow. So when you look at festivals and you look at this, and this, again, my research is 15 years old, 14 years old, maybe at this point, you know that number's gone way up. So when you look at this and you look at the people who don't have that to turn to right now, this has caused, that's why things like the digital rent fair, um, you know, people doing uh, the, the stream guide that Nicole has put out, People want that so much. I mean, even I can see, like just on our little cakes and ale thing, the number of people are just like, oh my God, I just, you know, it's not because we're really great performers. I'll be honest with you. It's because people are really desperate. No. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're good performers. But no, it's because people, I mean, people are looking for things. And Nicole, I have to tell you, I have told you this personally, but I have to tell you this, what you're doing with that Renaissance Stream Guide, I know that's got to be a ton of work to put all of that together. But I have heard so many people tell me on, on my stream and message me and say, you know, oh my gosh, Renaissance Stream Guide, I didn't know about that. I heard about it from you. And now I've looked and I found and I got to see this other great thing on Thursday night. And I got to yeah. go and see this. And I have this double header now. I watch you and then I watch, I think, Brune does something right after me on Wednesday <laughs> night. So it's like this double header. We go from food to booze. And it's like, and I'm like, or booze to booze, depending on what show you're doing. It's like, yeah. <laughs> um, so I just want you to know, like, these are patrons, and to them right now, this is a lifeline. And, and, I, and I think that escapism what, that you were asking about, Victoria, I think that's really what it's about. I think that's where people just don't understand. Um, you know, and, and Broadway provides a, you know, provides a certain sense of escape. But that Broadway escape is an hour and 45 minutes. And also it's in New York. Like uh, what I say to a lot of people, like no matter what the year, it could be this year in chaos, it could be 2001. All those years in between, there are places that feel like a battleground to people. Like I often say that the festivals that feel most special to me, the ones that feel like a true community are the ones that are in the most restrictive areas. The places that don't welcome LGBT, like, won't welcome trans people, won't welcome um, people who who act differently, won't welcome anyone who tries to be unique. Those are the places where the Renaissance Festival is, feels like the biggest, (laughs) feels like the biggest community. And I feel like a lot of people don't realize that the actual people who travel to Renaissance Festivals are, like, a greater majority are for example, LGBT or are like um, uh, poly, for example, or are, yeah, that we are the people that these like more conservative or restricted areas don't want to think about. 
And so that's why when we come around, the people who may not feel at home in their areas suddenly think, oh, for this month, for this, these two months, for these six weeks, I have a home where I can just be my true self and not have to worry. And so beyond escapism, it's almost like an, uh, I'm thinking about you, you going from um, li uh, liminal to, remind me of your word? Interestus. It's like, instead of escapism, it's finally being able to go into yourself for the first time in a year or first time in 15 years or something like that. Exactly. And, yeah. I, and having done the small fair circuit in the Midwest, right? So having done, you know, we were guest cast at Kansas City. I've done Oklahoma. Um, but I've also done, like I said, Nebraska and Amana Colonies, which are small fairs. I did White Heart, which is a tiny itty bitty fair. Um, I, and when you do those fairs in those places, especially, um, you do see that, but you, and you, and I have heard people say, this is the first place I felt at home. This is the first place I felt comfortable. This is the first place I felt I could truly be me. And it's funny because maybe that truly being them is having blue hair and fairy wings and, and walking around, but that's the expression of their inner person. And so a lot of people just lost all of those things for this year. Um, I laugh because we've always said if we ever took a year off from Maryland, we would do Pensick and Burning Man because, yes. you know, they're two things that we never get to do because we do Maryland, right? And of course, the year that we obviously can't do Maryland, we also can't do Pensick and Burning Man. So, you know, it's all of those things, all of the small fairs, but then also all of those tangential things that where people, where you see overlaps from Pensick, from Burning Man, from other festivals. Um, I used to run an area of the popular culture association called festivals and fairs. And, you know, people would come to me, would present papers on like everything from Burning Man and Pensick to and Renaissance festivals to like these crazy small festivals and places. And, but they were always festivals that drew people, I mean, that were out of the norm. They were weird little festivals, the Mothman festival, um, a casket festival, a gourd festival. Um, it just all of these things and festival does that it, it brings people in it gives people um a chance to participate in that that world of carnival that world that bakhtin talks about um that rabelais wrote about where you know and and a lot of it is tied to you know to music it, it you know it's it's part and parcel of it to food to the feasting um, how many people have said, oh my God, I would do anything just to have, where do I get a smoked turkey leg right now? Like how many of you have heard that from somebody like, I want to, and I'm like, that's on like every friends of fair Facebook group. I'm like, just have ham. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. have ham. Cause that's, I mean, I don't know if you know the story about the, the, the time that we got threatened to get shut, you know, really shunned from the, I'm not sure what the Jewish equivalent of the pulpit is. Um, by a rabbi who came with a friend to the Maryland Renaissance Festival and then wrote a letter um, basically saying that we were condemning people's souls because um, we were serving ham and dressing it up and pretending it was turkey. Oh, and they no. literally had to, oh yes, this is a true story. And Ooh. they literally had to send him a copy of the thing from the turkey farm being like, no, no, no. And my question was, how did he know it tasted like ham in the first place? <gasps> mm, exactly. 
But um, but it's like, you know, people, people joke, you know, I would give anything for fried cheese on a stick. I would give anything for, you know, just to have that, whatever that fair food is. If I had a nickel for every person on my Facebook who posted what they drank on Sunday, the closing day of the Maryland Renaissance Festival, I would never have to work again. Right? Because everybody was like, I had a bee sting. I had this. I had that. I had an Oktoberfest. I had a, I had a cider. I had... Everybody was just posting, you know, what they what they drank that last day, you know, to get that. And that's also part of what I talk about in the book is the difference between festival and other theaters is the sensecape. Most theaters engage at most your sight and your sound, right? Um, but at Maryland, at festivals, at Renaissance festivals, you engage not only sight and sound, but smell. And that smell ranges because the amazing smell of the crepes Oh, the amazing smell walking past the steak on a steak booth. The smell walking past the elephants in the joust arena, which thank goodness are right next to each other. <laughs> and a set of privies, because it's, you know, one-stop shopping there. Um, but the smells. And then the taste. The food that you get that you just don't get any other time of year. Where, where are you getting macaroni and cheese on a stick? Where are you getting your, your smoked turkey legs? Uh, I had somebody who was like, I went to Panera to have soup in a bread bowl. It Aww. was good, but it wasn't the same. It was one of the saddest things I'd ever heard because Panera does have really good soup in a bread bowl, but it's not the same as walking around with soup in a bread bowl and trying to eat it while you're walking around the streets and you're hearing the music and you're sipping a cider and you're trying to balance your cider and your bread bowl. And you're, you know, it's different to sit, you know. And the smell of roasted nuts. Oh, I love the roasted nuts. It's like, you know, if you get like a, I know, if you get a beverage, like a Pepsi, it tastes different if you get it out of a fountain, if it's a fountain drink, or if you're drinking out of a can, or if you're drinking out of plastic, or if you're drinking out of a glass bottle. It's like the same with that bread bowl. Like, it might not be a different container, but everything around you is different if you're eating it at a festival or if you're eating it at Panera. And you have to have the whole thing to make it so good at a festival like everything contributes i thought you were going to talk about mugs because every drink sounds di- tastes different if you put it in a renaissance fair that's mug. where i thought you were going with that too nope yeah. sorry <laughs> that's true too yeah i mean but that, it is true it is absolutely true and what mug you drink it out of it tastes different i mean because yep. i've played like i said i've played every year so i've had everything from like you know your broke down wooden mug your ceramic mug that didn't even have a handle because i was so poor and up to you know a fellowship foundry gobble you know which I've actually broken I've I've to say god bless them they really do mean it when they give the lifetime guarantee because I have literally broken my fellowship foundry goblet three times and they swore they're like this thing really isn't breakable you don't have to worry about it and I'm like you've never actually seen me perform have you you're like challenge accepted it was a flying grovel I, I went to do a flying grovel when I was playing Hilaria and the got it was on my hip and it got between my hip bone and the ground and me and oh my that was i was bruised <laughs> by flying grovel do you mean you were about to grovel at someone you launch yourself in the air and then grovel it was pretty much that yeah that's impressive olivia is now adding to her uh to her library of um of movements challenge accepted <laughs> flying grovels i um I really would love to get back to being a character that I could do that. 
Um, my character right now is just kind of a how low can you go type of character. And I also really need to rehab. I had back surgery in January. And I was supposed to start rehab on March 17th. Of course. Yeah. So I've had no physical therapy after having oh, back surgery. No. Oh so my God. Um, I have to spend like the next eight months getting myself back in shape and really getting ready to to be physical for fair because my character is incredibly physical. <laughs> she's just, she's Nicole's favorite character. My, my character is just nuts. Cecily has like zero filter. That little bit of filter, not much. Uh, you you have played so many tremendous different roles in in the uh, Renaissance Fair uh, circuit, and you have experienced the whole thing, and you have brought a great deal of um, integrity to the Renaissance Fair world by writing a dissertation on the Renaissance Festival that cites so many other theatrical works and lays the groundwork for future theatrical studies of the Renaissance Fair, as well as coining um, words in to be used to describe it and better, better um, communicate the feeling and the experience that is the Renaissance Fair. Um, and that is that is absolutely incredible. And we want to thank you for for your work in this in this field and for putting putting the groundwork in front of us because because this is tremendously interesting to those of us who have lived it and been there and i'm sure to some who will um uh have experienced it especially folks in the maryland area particular but we are going to come around towards the end of our program here friends so my name is victoria van arnhem and i perform as the lady victoria and i'm nicole skelly and my show is the gwendolyn show and I'm Olivia Harding, and I perform as Liv the Druid in Music the Gathering. Thank you so much to our special guest today, Dr. Tony Coral Evans. Thank you so much for joining us. Goodbye, ladies. Bye! Bye. <laughs>